I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director here at Long Now. Um, so glad to have a full house. I think um, I think the topic tonight is on everybody's mind. Um, just a couple quick notes. Uh, as many of you know, we have a podcast of this series. Uh, that podcast has been going on since a few years after the series started in 2003. And those of you who have been waiting for it to be on the Google Play Store for the last 14 years, now you can get it there, uh, just so you know. But that's actually one of the largest outreaches uh, that Long Now has. Um, about a million people a year have been downloading the audio of these talks. And so it's, uh, it's, it's always great to, to find somebody who has heard about this series out in the world and, and actually barely knows what Long Now does, but this is kind of the way that, um, that a lot of people figure out about the rest of the series, other projects, uh, and general projects around long-term thinking. <laughs> Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. Getting into the pace of government at its detailed level, at the user interface of government with citizens, with customers, is such an interesting place that I'm not sure that we all give it enough time and that's why it's so useful tonight to have a government user interface expert with a bunch of experience to come and talk about that, Jennifer Polka. I have uh, been to many Long Now seminars, so it's, it's really an honor to be on the stage. Thank you. Um, and in fact, I was at the last one where Stephen Johnson talked about how when technologies are just emerging, they're in that, that space of delight and play and invention and discovery, and then they become commercialized and they get a little bit, bit more boring. And what I'm going to do is pick it up way after that <laughs> when these technologies have gotten in some ways so boring that maybe hopefully they're interesting again. <laughs> Uh, but we are going to spend some time with something I think people don't talk about a lot, um, and that's uh, what's wrong with government, uh, how to, how, some ideas about how to fix it. But more importantly, I think um, what I hope you take away from tonight is, is sort of a fresh view on what fixing government might really mean. And I want to start with um, a short story, actually. I'm not kidding. It really is a short story that my friend Matthew Weaver wrote. I'm gonna, I've abridged it a little bit here, um, and I have to use this because it uses so many acronyms that I don't even know that uh, it's gonna curl your hair. But I, trust me, they're technical acronyms, they're government acronyms, but I think you'll get it. Um, Matt Weaver uh, was a Google engineer who we brought to the White House for the healthcare.gov rescue effort and decided to stay in as a member of the United States Digital Service and then a member of the Defense Digital Service. Um, and he knows a, a lot about this and he was inspired to write a short story about um, technology 
policy in government. So our story begins with a troubled technology project at the Air Force. Now part of this project is a suite of software. One of the components in that suite is a scientific calculation that, re that relies on time-sensitive data collected by distributed measurement stations. Now the job of this software is to get the data from the stations to the software that does the calculation. The measurement stations send the data using something called multicast user datagram protocol. First uh, uh, acronym alert. Uh, multicast UDP is a basic feature of the internet protocol since 1989. It's part of the internet code in almost every operating system in the world. It costs no money. Every server operating system includes tools to check and debug multicast UDP. So sending the data through UDP would be fast, reliable, easy. It's a little bit like if you wanted to put a nail on a board, you might do this. Um, that's how it should work. Unfortunately, that's not what happens in this piece of software that the Air Force has commissioned. Instead, it's a little bit more like this. So first, a piece of software subscribes to the multicast UDP messages. It reads the data as it arrives. It checks the cryptographic signatures on each datagram. Then it recodes the data into a format called XML-SEC with another cryptographic signature. XML-SEC has a lot of overhead, so this step uses memory and CPU time. It makes the message larger. Then the software uh, uses a protocol called SOAP to put the XML-SEC message onto something called an enterprise service bus. XML-SEC, ESB, and SOAP are all very complicated. In fact, they come in a lot of incompatible versions. They cost a lot of money. ESB, for example, is an entire suite of software in itself. So checking and debugging this software also needs special tools and more specialized programming experience. These tools don't come as a part of any operating system by default. Oh, it's not even over yet. So the ESB eventually delivers the new XML SEC message with the monitoring data to yet another piece of software. And this software uses SOAP to retrieve the XML SEC from the SCB copies into memory, parses out to the original data, blah, blah, blah. Finally, the piece of software copies the data into a shared segment of memory where the calculation software can access it. So you're probably hating government contractors right now. Uh, you're probably thinking, oh my god, they're wasting taxpayer dollars. Why would you do it that way? Well, I'm not a big defender of government contractors, but in my experience, it's a lot more complicated than this. And um, what Weaver did was asked the contractor why they built this whole big Rube Goldberg machine instead of just hammering the nail into the board. And the contractor said, the customer made us do it. Um, so uh, Weaver looked, and this was true, the request for proposal from the Air Force requires solutions that use, that include an ESB, that enterprise service bus. Now why did the Air Force want all this complex costly technology? The author asked the Air Force. The Air Force said, the, de uh, the Defense Department made us do it. So the author looked, and this was true. The DOD issued guidance as recently as 2010 that requires that all technology acquisitions be service-oriented architectures that comply with information enterprise architecture. So why did the Department of Defense require this complex dependency multiplying technology in all of its systems? The author asked the DOD, and the DOD said, the Office of Management and Budget made us do it. So, so the author looked, and this was also true. 
As recently as 2008, OMB issued guidance and requirements that require all federal IT projects to have a service-oriented architecture, and the rules for SOA require an SOB, uh, an ES, ESB, excuse me. <laughs> maybe, maybe that too. Maybe that too. So why did the Office of Management and Budget do it? They said the Chief Information Officer's Council made us do it. The author looked up this. This was also true. As far back as 1999, the Federal CIO Council deployed the Federal Enterprise Architecture 5. That requires federal technology solutions of any kind to include an ESB by way of SOA guidance. So why would the CIO Council do this? Again, the author asked the CIO Council. The CIO Council said, Congress made us do it. This is also true. There are several pieces of legislation that instruct the CIOs to issue this guidance. There are two key ones, the uh, 1993 Government Performance Act and the 1996 Cleaner Cohen Act. I always love talking about the Cleaner Cohen Act because I always think it's written <laughs> by Klinger from MASH and Leonard Cohen, and sadly is not. Instead, it is a piece of software that if you Google it, it tells you before you're even finished writing the word that you're looking for a compliance checklist, which generally means you're in sort of icky territory. Um, but together, these two laws require that the office of the president issue a plan for all technology. So let's be clear, an ESB is not necessarily like a terrible thing to include. Um, if you look it up in Wikipedia, it actually tells you that ESB promotes agility and flexibility with regard to high protocol level communications between applications. That can't be a bad thing, right? So these CIOs were not being idiots. They weren't trying to ensure that all federal IT projects become massive predictable failures for 20 years. Unfortunately, that's sort of what happened. Um, and the moral of this story, as uh, Weaver puts it, and this is the end of his story, almost all outcomes generated by technical policy will be unintended consequences. <laughs> so I have worked at this intersection of technology and government now for about six years, and I have had literally dozens of people come up to me and say, well, you're smart about this. So what's the law we could pass? Why can't we just pass a law that repeals that, or writes this thing, or overdoes this? And so um, I think that that's a great question, but I have come to think of it as the Death Star thinking. It's basically the notion that if we just place one very well-placed shot in the thermal exhaust port of the Death Star, <laughs> then the entire apparatus of our uh, of our uh, oppression is just going to go boom into the sky and we're suddenly going to be free. And people think that because this is government, that shot is a very, very well-written law, better than all the laws that we've written so far. <laughs> and the problem is that we just don't yet know how to write laws that aren't subject to that bigger law, that law of unintended consequences. And so um, what I want to talk about are some of the people who are dealing with those laws. Um, the law of unintended consequences and also the actual laws like Klinger-Cohen. Um, uh, when I was in the uh, White House um, in 1990, uh, uh, excuse me, 2013 and 14, I helped stand up a unit called the United States Digital Service. It's the thing that uh, my friend Matt Weaver moved into. Um, and the idea there was that we needed really great technology people to come work on the president's top priorities. Um, here's some of the people who came to work for the United States Digital Service. 
Um, they're fantastic people. They mostly, just like Code for America fellows, um, where I work, have experience in the consumer internet. So they're used to, on a daily basis, making uh, apps, interfaces that work great for users, that think people, things that people want to use, which is why we wanted to bring them into government. Um, so I'm going to talk about some of their experiences. Uh, in the front here, um, to the left, is a guy in a green shirt. That's Brian Leffler. He happens to be talking to Marina Martin. And for some reason, I'm going to reference both of those people in my talk, because they're both friends. Um, um, I'm going to start with Marina. Uh, Marina has been, the, until very recently, the chief technology officer at the Veterans Administration. And that's a really hard job. Um, she's done some amazing stuff. Um, here's a project that she did. Um, she noticed that uh, very few people are able to apply for health benefits online, uh, veterans uh, able to apply for health benefits. And um, what happened really was that technically, you could apply online um, if you had the exact right combination of Internet Explorer and Adobe Reader on your computer. Um, so uh, if you didn't have that exact version of IE and that exact version of Adobe, you get this error message. And I think what happened is that um, either people just didn't check because the, somebody had verified that the contract was done. The, the, the contractor had done it and they'd gotten the check mark. Um, or people tried it and happened to have that exact combination which is not um, totally unthinkable given the technology that the VA runs, um, or they just didn't check. But basically, she started explaining to people that veterans were not able to apply online, and the answer that she got from uh, folks was something about like this. This is a very quick clip from 30 Rock. Yes, the ceiling appears to be leaking. No, it's not. We've looked into it, and it's not. So, so Marina actually finally went out, uh, her team went out into the street, and I'm not making this up, um, found homeless veterans and asked them to try to apply online. In fact, found one who had tried to apply 20 times online and 20 times seen that error message. Did screen capture of them trying to use it, brought them to the deputy secretary and got the approval to do a better uh, application form online. Vets.gov is pretty simple, basic web form that allows you to apply online, and it works. It just works. Um, and this is the kind of work that that team has been doing. And they've been doing dozens and dozens of projects like that all over government, not just at the VA digital service, but in the other branches of the US digital service and the other um, eight cabinet agencies that have those teams. Um, so these guys are doing amazing work um, for the American people. And you might think that uh, if they have an enemy, that it's the kind of people who say your ceiling isn't leaking. And in fact, I think that they, and this is the experience at USDS and at Code for America as well, um, the, they find that the partners that they work with in government are in fact wonderful, kind, caring, creative people who want to get the job done right. And if they have any enemies, it's, um, it's the laws. Uh, one of the biggest enemies of the people who work in technology and government is the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1980. And we always refer to it as the comically misnamed Paperwork Reduction Act of 1980 because it 
somehow makes entirely enormously more amounts of paperwork. Um, it, it basically is a law that says if you want to put anything out to the public that will collect information back to the government, you have to go through a process of getting your form approved that is a minimum of six months, including all these waiting periods. It all has to go through one office, the Office of um, Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, uh, which is terribly understaffed. And so it, it makes a lot of more paperwork for bureaucrats, and maybe you don't think that's a problem. The problem for the American public is that it makes it almost impossible to publish a really good web application or web form that you might want to use. So let me explain a little bit. I'm going to show you a web form that I think is very good. Of course, we made it at Code for America. Oh, I'm sorry. This is uh, OIRA's um, numbers. When you uh, Paperwork Reduction Act is why there's a number up in the corner of your tax form, the OMB number by the 2016. And then you'll notice that at the bottom that there's an, uh, they're telling you that there's an entire separate set of instructions having to do with the Paperwork Reduction Act. So we're already in funky territory. But let me show you a web form that I think works really well. Um, Code for America uh, team made this application for Californians to apply for food assistance. Uh, nationally, it's known as SNAP. We call it CalFresh here. Our app is called Get CalFresh. And um, if you look at the, the questions, you'll see that the wording is very um, easy to understand. Um, you know what you're being asked in the questions. It takes about eight minutes to apply for uh, food assistance to California using this form. And um, uh, maybe it doesn't seem like rocket science to you, but it, it's much better than, than what, you would, what I'm going to show you in a minute. And the point is that this is a result of thousands and thousands of iterations. We put this out to users, and then we watched what they did. And if someone was confused by a question, we changed it. We changed the language. We changed the design. We changed which questions we ask so that we make the time required to fill out the form as short as possible. Um, but the completion of the form, knowing the questions that we need to get from our users in order to make sure that they get a successful application when they uh, apply to the state, uh, uh, we need to get those questions right. So this is an enormous number of iterations. Now think about if every single iteration of that form had to go through the six-month process at OMB. It simply wouldn't work. And when you have applications that do have to go through that, you get something like this. This is how you apply for food stamps in California now. If you haven't found Get CalFresh, please spread the word about Get CalFresh. Um, it takes 40, uh, at least 45 minutes to apply. It asks uh, 200 and something questions. Uh, you can't save your work. It doesn't work on a mobile phone. Most people who start it don't ever finish it. Um, and this is the result not just of the Paperwork Reduction Act. It's the result of a, a way of thinking that says we must ask every possible question when we have this user in front of us because we're never going to get a chance to do it again. Um, so this is an example of what I like to call the outside-in strategy. Um, we created this form independent of government. Um, we, it certainly complies um, with all, everything that's needed. We very successfully um, get food stamps um, for thousands of people through that form. But because we can work at our own pace and we are not subject to, we are subject to many, many different regulations and we comply with them in our own manner. But we decide uh, on how we're going to comply with them, which means that we can move at a pace much faster than the pace of government while still uh, really, uh, you know, really working with government. And one of the things I want, to, want you to understand is this is not an outside strategy. It's an outside-in strategy. And what do I mean by that? Um, 
When we started this form, we thought, great, if we can make it easier for people to apply, then more people will be able to get food assistance. And that's important. Um, California is the second worst state in the nation in terms of participation by eligible people in SNAP. We have more people by far who are eligible for this program that aren't on it. And it's not as many people think because we're trying to keep people off the program. Um, so when we put up this form, we thought, great, now, now the problem will be solved. But let's just check. Let's follow up with our users by text message and ask them if, uh, if, they've, if they got, got the benefit. So we started texting all our users. And we found things like this. Um, this is actually from one of our own staff. Uh, you get a letter telling you when your interview is going to be. The interview is a required step to get the benefit. This is Jake's letter. He does not speak Chinese. Uh, we found, uh, and this is more statistically, that in certain counties, double-digit percentages of the people who applied got the letter telling them when their interview is after the date of the interview. And when you don't get the interview, you start over at the beginning. Um, in another county, everybody that we texted said, I got this fraud prevention program form. And I read the questions, and they're really intimidating. I don't know how to answer them, and I'm afraid to answer them. And so I'm not returning the form, and then you don't progress. So um, our team, as we do, uh, called the county welfare director and said very respectfully, you know, this form is not required by any law, policy, or regulation. And she said, we don't send that form out. And two weeks later, she called us back and she said, thank you so much for letting us know. I didn't know that the eligibility workers were sending the form out. Now I've talked to them. They're not doing it anymore. And suddenly we see in our data that more and more of those people are getting through the system. So the, the, the point of this is not that we are sitting outside government, but that we are actually increasingly um, deeply embedded in the operations of government in order to get better outcomes. A nicer web form is a lovely thing, but actually getting somebody on the program makes a lot more difference to us. So this is sort of the pattern that we follow our model. We build an alternate app as fast as we can, get it as good as we can. We collect data from users about what's going on. We use that to help government agencies debug their operations. And that very often leads to changes in policy. And I'm going to talk about policy later on um, in, in the talk. That, in turn, builds trust because the agencies appreciate what we're doing. And that gives us the leverage then to build another app, uh, like our Clear My Record app, which is for people to take uh, low-level old felonies off their records so that they can be eligible for jobs, housing, and other benefits. Um, we also run an inside-out play. In fact, that's what we started doing, um, by which I mean putting great people in government. Um, uh, we started doing this in uh, our first fellowship year in 2011, where we got folks from the tech industry uh, to go work in City Hall. This is Max Ogden. He was one of our first fellows. And I put him up there because I just talked a little bit about goodwill with people in government. And Max had this very long beard. And for some reason, that beard became a way of uh, really connecting with people in Boston City Hall because the word got around that if you had data problems, and everybody had data problems, go find the guy with the beard. Um, uh, so these guys went into government. And I'm going to uh, show you one uh, project that they did that's not Max's. Joel Mahoney did this. Um, the mayor asked us to work about midway through the year on a project around school selection. 
they had changed the rules about how uh, kids uh, with, how kids get assigned to public schools. And the way they were communicating it to parents was a 28-page printed brochure with six-point type. But the problem is it didn't tell you where your kid could go because it was a mapping problem. It was about the distance from your house and a couple of other factors to the school. Uh, and so uh, um, Joel, and with a little bit of help from another fellow, went off for about um, 10 weeks and put up this um, basic web application called Discover BPS, where you could type in the, your name, age, your, your address, age of your kid, whether there was a sibling in the public schools, and it would return a mapped list of um, which schools your, your kid could attend. And again, if this doesn't seem like rocket science, it isn't. Um, but the point of this is that at the end of this project, we were told that um, th this 10-week this project with one and a half uh, full-time employees on it, that if it had gone through regular channels, it would have taken about two years and cost about $2 million. Um, which takes, brings me to um, the word that I can't believe I've made it this far without saying, which is procurement. Uh, procurement is sort of the dirty word in circles of people who deal with government technology. All it really is is the rules that are supposed to govern how the government buys things, including technology. Um, I've always been interested in how we ended up with this particular set of rules. Um, and so I um, was intrigued recently when Brian, uh, the guy from the photo before, uh, who is at the United States Digital Service, had posted this on Facebook. Um, he said he was struck by the realization that many of the systems which plague us now were created by a tiny group of well-intentioned good government congressmen in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he goes on to say, those mechanisms were left to sit for 30 to 40 years, and surprise, now they suck, his opinion. Um, but this Jack Brooks character that he referenced was very interesting to me, and I went and I looked him up, and it turns out he's a fascinating guy. So um, he is a, was a Democrat from Beaumont, Texas. He was in uh, the Congress for 42 years. He was in the motorcade uh, when JFK was shot, he was on Air Force One by LBJ's side when he was sworn in. That's him right there behind Jackie O. Um, he was also one of, the, one of the very few Southern lawmakers who refused to sign the Southern Manifesto against uh, um, integrating schools. Uh, he's a really fascinating guy. So this is a picture of him working. And um, turns out a lot of the work that this guy did was around procurement. He, in, uh, later in his career, was the uh, congressman who introduced the Paperwork Reduction Act. Um, he also created the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, um, where I spent um, a, a, a lot of my time um, when I worked at the White House. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating place. So, He's known for a couple of things called the Brooks Act. There was the Brooks Act of 1965, um, which is uh, really about the fact that he was looking across federal government where we were starting to do enormous amounts of automated data processing. And he said, hey, if we pull all that together and centralize it, we could get a much lower price and, and it could be more standardized. We could do a much better job of data processing across the federal government. And so he wrote this act to do that. Um, but if you Google Brooks Act, you're actually going to come up with the, the Brooks Act of 1972, which actually had a very opposite intention. Um, this was an act that he wrote when he realized that going for lowest price when you are hiring an engineering or architecture firm uh, ends up in buildings that fall down on you. 
So he uh, wrote legislation that made competency, qualifications, and experience the criteria for choosing uh, those kinds of firms and services for the federal government. Um, I love also that this is associated with him. Um, it's a quote from Ronald Reagan at a ceremony recognizing design excellence in federal buildings, apparently inspired by Jack Brooks. Uh, he said, good design doesn't cost money. Good design saves money. And you know that warms my heart. So we know what warms Reagan's heart. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jack Brooks ran into this guy in, I think it's 1984. Um, he's also from Congress. His name's Berkeley Bedell. He is from Iowa. He was only in Congress for 12 years, so I don't think he had quite the uh, standing and reputation that Jack Brooks did. But he is the guy, you've probably never heard his name, but you've probably heard this story. He went and found this kit of sort of basic hardware that the Air Force had bought. It had 21 items in it. The total that the Air Force had paid for it was $10,168.56. He went to his hardware store and bought the same 21 items for $92.44. And he brought them to the floor of Congress and introduced an amendment to the military spending authorization bill uh, uh, designed to promote more vigorous competition and lower prices. But most famously, he brought this hammer <laughs> into Congress and kind of ranted about the cost of this hammer. Um, now, who fought him on this amendment? Jack Brooks. Uh, Jack Brooks, in, in fact, said, this threatens to disrupt the legitimate procurement activities of the Defense Department. He said, this amendment, while seeking to cure the illness, may kill the patient. So he had a different view of this, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Berkeley Bedell did not succeed in uh, his amendment. It passed the House. I think it failed in the Senate. Um, but I think most of, many of you have heard about this hammer. It sort of lived on in lore. It's sometimes known as the $400 hammer or the $600 hammer or the $800 hammer because people exaggerate things over time. But it also became the centerpiece of um, Al Gore's, well, not the centerpiece. It became a player in Al Gore's reinventing government, which he did when he became vice president in 1993. Part of his thing was to say, um, he's going to go around giving awards to people in government who are saving government money. And the award literally is this cheap frame, a $6 hammer, and this printed thing, and the ribbon. It was like the whole idea of the award was that it was cheap, which was super cute. Um, in fact, um, on the right there, the, the black and white photo, he's giving it to the Deputy Secretary of Defense um, for the defense travel system. The guy he's giving it to, his name is Hamry. So I was just like, oh my god, there's so many hammers. Hammers, hammers. Um, I thought that was interesting that he gave it to the defense travel system because now we have a branch of the United States Digital Service called the Defense Digital Service, a fantastic team of developers, of which Matt Weaver was one. Um, and they went around trying to choose like which are the most horrible projects, uh, you know, horrible things in DOD that they could fix. And the first thing they chose was the defense travel system. <laughs> Apparently, it takes hours and hours to book a ticket and uh, many more hours to file your expenses. And it's the thing that people at the DOD complain the most about. If anyone hears from DOD, you'll have to tell me if that's true. Um, so either that thing in 1997 with Hamry was not that good to start with, or it's just not aged well. Um, but, uh, but back to Bedell, why did Brooks fight him on this? Well, um, I think Bedell was basically fighting to keep light prices low by imposing rules. And um, you know that's 
The amendment didn't pass, but that idea that if we write enough rules, um, government procurement will work better is, is essentially how it works today. Uh, you know, the federal acquisition regulation is the thing, uh, the, many other things, but the federal acquisition regulation is basically uh, 775 pages of rules that tell you how to do this. Um, one part of procurement is the request for proposal, or the RFP. Um, here is one visualization from it, uh, of it from one, um, one uh, you know, in interpretation of it. And within that is um, step three, only one of many. And it says, for IT procurements, the department prepares and submits an I, uh, IT procurement requisition to IT with specifications. That step alone takes many years. It's actually very uncommon to be able to do that um, in less than a year or even or less than a couple of years. Um, because you have to tell somebody absolutely everything that the software is going to do and how it's going to do it before you ever write a line of code or before you ever talk to a vendor about it. So um, that's like how this was built, for instance. Um, taxpayers paid $800 million to build this. I'm not making this up. Um, we pay $80 million a year to maintain this piece of software in the state of California. It's, only, it's one of only three different systems uh, 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 that you, it's one of three different systems that you could use to sign up for food stamps in California. Um, that's not how good software is built. Um, we believe that good software is built in a user-centered, iterative, data-driven fashion, um, learn, build, measure. Um, and uh, this may sound familiar to many of you. Um, the truth is, though, that we are starting to be able to build government software in this fashion. Um, and not just the little things. Thank you, yes. Um, it's not just the little apps that you could do, like uh, Joel did with the um, Discover BPS. I'm going to tell you a, a, a hopefully quick story um, about a procurement that we got involved with last year. And I should say, Coach Merck does not do procurement consulting. This is not indicative of our business. But um, about a year and a half ago, um, when we were working with the state uh, on the food stamp stuff, they asked us to look at a procurement for child welfare, a child welfare system. It looks something like this. Um, and uh, we took a look at it. It, um, it assumed that the price tag would start at about $600 million and that it would take about six years to build. And uh, long story short, we said this is not probably going to work and made some suggestions for how they might, might do it differently. And then um, about six months later, found out that they were going to go forward with it anyway. And um, I found this out uh, in October. They were supposed to put out the um, request for proposal um, right before Christmas. Uh, sorry, right before, for, um, before Thanksgiving. And um, I got kind of upset about it because there are um, 475,000 reports of abuse and neglect of kids in California every year. And the social workers and other people, data analysts, et cetera, all the people who work in that system who are supposed to be taking care of those kids haven't really had reasonable software to work with for many years. Um, it's, it's true that the software they are using now is out of federal compliance. I'm not sure you know, what exactly that means, but I do know that we're not giving them the tools that they need to do their jobs, given the enormity of that and the importance of that job. Um, and so I, I knew somebody in uh, state government to call, and I called her, and I said I would re you know, respectfully request that you not sign this when it comes across your desk. 
And she said, well, why not? And I said, because it won't work. And she said, do you think we don't know that? <laughs> I said, well, why would you sign it? And she said, we don't have any other options. Well, how else do you do it? And I said, if we give you another option, will you consider it? And um, she said, can you be in Sacramento on Tuesday? So we went to Sacramento, and we shared some of the ways that we'd been working at Code for America and at the United States Digital Service, at the VA Digital Service, and um, they said, we're all in. And they took that uh, monolithic $600 million six-year project and broke it up into a bunch of different bits. Um, that uh, a, a very different set of vendors was eligible to bid on. Um, and most importantly, um, they said, we're going to only accept companies that want to meet user needs, not government needs here. Um, the group of people who made that decision were incredibly courageous because this went against everything that uh, they knew how to do. They threw out several years of many people's work um, on that contract, um, and they are going at it. They're doing a fantastic job. They're, they're pretty far along in it right now. It's the first phase of it. There is a problem. They don't have enough tech talent. Um, and I usually end every talk by asking people to go work in government if you have any technical skills. I'll just do that now here. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit about why they don't have enough tech talent um, at the state of California and everywhere else. Um, in 2012, my friend Tom Steinberg, um, who also does this kind of work but in the UK, um, wrote a blog post about a, uh, a former colleague of his who was a genius, a polymath, and could have done anything at all with his life, but had chosen to dedicate his life to public service and uh, public sector technology. Um, and in memorializing Chris, who had sadly died, uh, Tom said, what Chris fundamentally had right was the understanding that you can no longer run a country properly if the elites don't understand technology in the same way that they grasp economics or propaganda or ideology. And his analysis and predictions about what would happen if the elites couldn't learn were savage and depressingly accurate. I read that in February 2012. I read it again in October 2013 when healthcare.gov didn't work and I was working at the White House. And I thought, oh, that's what he meant about uh, his predictions. He was predicting something like the president's signature policy initiative go, almost going down in flames because we couldn't put up a website. Um, but I'm thinking about that now. I, I, I don't blame the election of Donald Trump on bad government technology, but I do think that we've you know, created a system, essentially, that most of the country just wants to blow up. And I'm not really even saying I just think that, that Trump voters want to blow it up. I think um, a lot of the country finds a lot of pieces of the way that we're running things worthy of blowing up, even if we differ on exactly what and how. Um, so there's an issue here about um, speed. A lot of people will say government is always going to run at a slower speed. So if this is Moore's law, and I, I borrowed these slides from my friend Clay Johnson, um, if government has a slight lag on it because uh, of, of, of processes, essentially, eventually society will be moving this quickly and uh, government will be behind. But if you play that over time, it gets worse 
and worse to the point where there's such a, a, a huge difference. Um, uh, Clay loved the, the thing from um, Moneyball. You remember the, the movie about the Oakland A's when they were terrible? There were the rich teams, the poor teams, 50 feet of crap, and the Oakland Athletics. Uh, he said, look, we're going to get to the point where you've got good services. This, you know, What's your favorite service that you use on your mobile phone every day? Services that are okay. You don't love them, but you use them. And then all the way down here is going to be government service. And that's not a good, that's not a good place to be. Um, I think the issue is if you don't use government services a lot, why should you care? And I'm, I think you should care anyway. A lot of those government services are ones connected to the safety net. We spend about 19% of our GDP in this country on the safety net. Uh, that's a lot of taxpayer dollars um, for things that aren't working very well. If you um, include um, basically after tax, um, so uh, tax deductions, tax credits. Um, you know you can't see this very well, but one of those lines is green. That's the United States. We're actually at the front of the pack in terms of expenditures on social programs, um, uh, if you include that. So an enormous amount of our wealth is going to that, and yet I don't need a chart to tell you that we are not getting the outcomes that we need. We are not getting our value for our dollar there. We have people sleeping on the street in San Francisco and everywhere. Another way to look at this is that we are spending 42, we, we collect and spend about $42 billion a year in charitable contributions for the safety net, and 11 times that through our tax dollars. So if this talk is convincing you that government is frustrating and you shouldn't work with, you know, you shouldn't try to work through government, you should go outside. That's exactly the opposite thing of what I'm trying to say. We cannot ignore the half trillion dollars that we are spending on taxes. I guarantee you it's going to be easier to make that $470 billion 10% more effective than it is to double the size of charitable contributions in this country. Thank you. Um, so I want to return to Jack Brooks, because I know you are all dying to know what happens with Jack Brooks. So uh, I, I feel like there's this sort of this question about whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, because he wrote this law that drives me crazy. Um, but you know, I don't think that the laws that he wrote were crazy at the time. I don't think they aged well. You write a, a law having to do with computer systems in 1965, it's going to need updating. Uh, that's, not, that's not really a question. Um, but I actually really love Jack Brooks. What I love about him is that he cared about the machinery of government. He got that government should understand what's a commodity and what you should pay a premium for right back in the 60s and 70s. He retired in 1995 before web applications and mobile phones and things like that. But I like to think that if he were in Congress today, um, he would be the guy who would realize that design is as important in software as it is in buildings. I would like to think that if he were around, he would have updated our procurement rules, because at least he cared, right? Um, uh, sorry, we're having a little bit of a slide issue here. Um, he's not in government now, and oh, you guys can't see the slides. Well, anyway, I'll keep going. Um, he's, he's not in Congress, and we don't have somebody who advocates for this in Congress. If we did, to be honest, it would be a Republican, the people who have expressed the most concern and support for the United States Digital Service has been, have been Republicans. I realize Democrats have some other stuff going on, but they've been very, very vocal and helpful. Um, those Republicans are eventually going to want to make a law uh, 
that governs how we use technology in government again. And as you can tell, I have hesitations about writing laws that govern technology in government. But because what I really want are the practices of the technology industry to show us how to make laws that avoid that law of unintended consequences. So I have one last story, and I'm sorry, I realize I'm going a little bit long. Um, there's a new law here called the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act. CHIP, of course, is an acronym, so it's a nested acronym, and I love those. Um, uh, and basically, it says we're going to pay doctors more for better quality care. And that's exactly the kind of thing that sounds great and is going to be hard to implement right. So we have a team at uh, Health and Human Services. It's a branch, again, of the United States Digital Service. A woman named Mina Shang runs this. And so what Mina did is she went to the regulators they are going to have to write the, the regulations that derive from MACRA and said, here's what we're going to do. Instead of the time frame that you have to write the regs for this law, I'm going to ask you to give me a first version of the regs in a fifth of the time. Our team is going to make a website that implements those regs. We're then going to together watch doctors use it. And then you're going to make a revision of the regs. We're going to make a revision of the website. And we're going to do that five more times. And by the time they shipped those regs, you had lawmakers, policymakers going, this is the best regulation I've ever written. Because when, you, when, regu when regulators get to the place where they're seeing how their stuff is actually used, they realize that everything they've written is, as my friend Tom Lusmore says, 500 pages of untested assumptions. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is that it's not so much that we need new laws to govern technology, it's that we need better tech practices that teach us how to make better laws. And when we can, thank you. Thank you. When we can do that, then I'm excited to write some laws to govern technology. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen in that Death Star way. I don't think it's going to be the single genius who figures out exact same language. I think it's going to be people who recognize the messiness of this process and realize that we don't know how people are going to react to things until we see them using them. Uh, and I think this is a great time to have humility about what people think about government and how, we, how they use it, especially after the election. Um, uh, this user-centered, iterative, and data-driven approach is really what we're trying to promote, not just in technology, but in operations and policymaking and lawmaking and governing. And it requires that we move a lot more quickly and that we really engage people. Um, uh, when you move quickly, then, you have to be efficient. And I do believe that efficiency in government is a matter of justice. Um, uh, as a quick example of that, um, we worked in Atlanta in 2013 or 14, I now don't remember, where we found that uh, people, a lot of people had bench warrants for their arrest for very trivial things. And when we did the research, we found that, we were, that people were waiting online over five hours to pay a basic traffic ticket. So that team did this sort of little intervention where they had the cops hand out uh, a, a little piece of paper that allows you to text your citation number and get help by text message so that you could skip the line, get an appointment, pay online. It would remind you if you had a court date. Just try to reduce the number of people who get uh, bench warrants for their arrest for, for silly things. And the truth is it really, really matters if you get a bench warrant. Because if you then make an illegal left turn, you will end up in jail. And um, 
I knew this, but I tell you, it ran a cold shiver up my spine when I, when I, my spine when I saw this in the New York Times after we'd done this. This is bench warrants per 1,000 people in cities in Missouri in 2013. There is one there that is 1,500 bench warrants per 1,000 people. That's Ferguson. So this does really matter. Um, and by the way, that thing that we did there was called CourtBot. Pretty simple little text message application. Uh, there's a team in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma that just um, re-implemented that for Tulsa on their own. They're volunteers, and they decided that they needed that in Tulsa, which means that you can do this too. Anybody can do this. The team, by the way, isn't just coders. It's coders and people who spent a year meeting people in the Tulsa County uh, criminal justice system and making friends with them and figuring how the system works. A lot of non-coding experience goes into making these things work. Um, but we are at a time right now when a lot of us are thinking that inefficiency in justice might be, uh, in, in government might be a really good thing. So <laughs> I am going to end on just a couple of examples of where government bureaucracy, which has driven me slightly batty over the past six years, um, actually is making me quite hopeful. And uh, uh, this is not actually bureaucratic resistance. This is the normal and appropriate checks and balances uh, in our government. Uh, but remember the name, remember the face. Thank you, U.S. District Judge Ann Donnelly, who stood up to an illegal um, uh, executive order. Um, but it's not just the normal checks and balances that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of years. Um, in, in 2009, uh, Schwarzenegger ordered his controller to cut people's pay uh, who worked for the state, and he just said no. And he won. They never did anything. They never cut anyone's pay. There was a lawsuit. John Chang won. You can just say no. Um, there's been a lot of articles about this recently. Um, the uh, JFK once called the State Department a bowl full of jello because it felt like it was so hard for them to get them to do anything. Today, I don't know if you heard, but a thousand people who work at the State Department wrote a signed a letter uh, telling Trump that he thought this idea was a terrible one. Um, at the EPA in the Reagan era, they were so distraught at what they were being asked to do that apparently their softball league spent more time doing anything than anybody else. They said the software, softball league was more active um, than the actual uh, workplace at the EPA during the Reagan era. Um, uh, but uh, um, the, the best uh, example of this actually comes from the simple sabotage field manual that the predecessor to um, the CIA put out, the Strategic Services Office. So this is a manual that they published for Americans living in Axis countries during the war, telling them how to slow down the operations um, of companies where they might work that might be contributing to the war effort. And I don't know if I've, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to read you these things. They're hysterical. Um, when possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. <laughs> Make the committee as large as possible, never less than five. <laughs> Haggle over the precise wording of communications, minutes, and resolutions. Refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to reopen the question of advisability of that decision. And this is my favorite one because I'm on stage. Make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experience. <laughs> 
Uh, you can find this online. It is so full of great stuff. It is uh, this, the Simple Sabotage Manual. I experienced all of these things, especially the um, open, back, open Up Matters again it, um, once they've been uh, decided. Um, I experienced those as friendly fire uh, when I worked in government, but I am just delighted that, that we can now um, use these things in, in a variety of different ways. Um, I would like to remind people, though, of our federal budget for a second here. Um, uh, if you are concerned about what our federal government is doing and would have concerns about working there, I would just say, of course. However, this is what we actually spend money on. That big blue block is Social Security. The red one is Medicaid, uh, food and nutrition assistance, housing and income support. That is mostly what our federal government does. And we need very good, very smart people to keep doing this and make sure that these people get their money, make sure that things work in, in, in government, regardless of who is in office. Um, because in the end of the day, decisions are made by those who show up, especially at the federal, uh, uh, the state and local level. Um, I always pitch, again, on people going into government. You, if you work at the state and local level right now, you actually could find yourself supporting a government very much standing up for your values um, and for people who need our support, um, but in places where they really lack the capacity to fight in the ways that they need to. We need to strengthen state and local government right now hugely. Um, when I think, though, about fighting, uh, because I think that's what a lot of the state and local governments are going to do, I think it's really important that we think about what we're fighting for. There have been enormous gains in the last six years that I will very much fight to keep. Um, but from what I've seen over the last several years of working in government, uh, I will say that the status quo for me is not worth fighting for. Um, when you have 20% of your GDP going to social services, but 7,000 homeless people just here in San Francisco, when you have those 475,000 reports of abuse and neglect of kids and we're not giving our social workers software or data to make better decisions, when you have a housing crisis and you don't jail the bankers but everyone else pays, that is a status quo that isn't, to me, worth fighting for. So I want us to be really creative uh, as we enter this new era and think about what government should do and how we should do it. I want us to fight for something new. Uh, for something better that we haven't seen yet. I think we're just going to have to use a lot of that crazy energy that's coming our way and in some cases direct those explosions at the things that really do need to, to break up and change and in other places stand and fight for what we have earned over the past six years. Um, so I, I invite you to think about government as an incredible force for change um, even today, in fact, today more than ever. And thank you for being part of this. Faceless. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. This is wonderful. Have I stumped you? No, no, you haven't. Where to begin? And uh, we sort of sometimes quietly judge our talks by how much they generate questions. There are stacks and stacks of questions. So Kevin has more, and probably more will come to the stage. Um, but one maybe to start with is the idea of faceless bureaucrats. 
uh, who elected officials are often sneering at, or at least when they're running for offices, yeah. and various other people, libertarians and others, oh, those, those damn bureaucrats. Civil servants, when I ran into them in, when I worked for Jerry Brown in the 70s, were pretty amazing. What, yeah. what's your, you've now met zillions of them. What, what's your perspective? Uh, completely amazing. Um, care deeply about the right answer. Uh, mm -hmm. Care deeply about serving the public. Um, and are, um, they, they have very, very hard jobs. Um, I think some of the people that I respect most uh, in the world are people who are public servants. And not just sort of, we're sort of telling a story these days mm -hmm. about people like my boss um, in, uh, at the White House, Todd Park, uh, who's a serial entrepreneur, very, very successful, as if he is the exception. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, oh, we've got somebody like Todd Park to come in and do public service. Well, um, I, I think there's an enormous number of people like that. Um, but even, you know, he's, he's sort of uh, done private sector, been an entrepreneur, you know, kind of come in and out. Uh, there are people, though, that have been in public service their whole career who I just think are um, absolutely going to be the save, you know, saving grace of this country. We do need to help them do their jobs better, absolutely. So is the continuity of the civil service, I mean, elected officials come and go, and then they usually appoint you know, one or two levels into the various departments and so on. But the body of the civil service is often their career, and they're yeah. there for, for decades for basically a lifetime of service. Is that kind of continuity a good thing, a bad thing? How does that look to you? Um, it's, it can be both, um, mm. certainly. Uh, who was I talking to today? It was talking about, I think it might have been Ashley, um, about how uh, I was... In, in some cases, you do have people who have, say, for instance, written a policy, and the policy needs to change over time, but they're protective right, of it right, right. because they've, they've been there a while. You do certainly get that that's how it's already done, or that's my creation, and I love it, and I want to protect it. Mm -hmm. um, the continuity is really important, though. I mean, I've been, I've been um, uh, spending more time with the, the Defense Department, and mm -hmm. the way that they rotate people there is seems to come up pretty often as one of the biggest problems. People don't get to sort of dig in and understand a particular problem. By the time they're learning what needs to happen to change it, they're rotated out because of uh, the rotation policies. Um, but uh, the, the continuity in the civil service is, is very much a, a you know, double-edged mm -hmm. sword. Mm -hmm. uh, at, its, at its core, though, you get people who are very good at something that we don't need, like, you know, uh, domains that we don't really even understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's not really a way to learn them either. You have mm -hmm. to go in and sort of apprentice to understand all these things. Now, some of those things probably need to go away. Some of those things need to be simplified so that they're less of a craft. Um, but I have enormous respect for the people who really, you know, get in there and, 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 and learn this. I think about that today when I heard the folks from the State Department talking about how um, proud they are to know, to be the experts mm -hmm. in, um, in how to protect our country. They're like, we do this. We've been doing this for years. Some of these people who are signatories to this letter uh, you know, have been doing this for, for 50 and 60 years. They're proud that they have the knowledge to have this opinion. And when uh, a politician comes in and says, that's not how we're going to do it, it's, very, it's deeply painful for them because they have pride in their work. Okay, so what should they do, and this really relates to several questions that were raised from the audience, is um, 
So uh, Spicer says, uh, well, you know, if, if they can't get with the program, maybe they should hit the road. Should they hit the road or should they buckle down or should they stay quiet and, and uh, sabotage? What should they do? It's a deeply I'm, personal question. It's very relevant to me right now, be, not because I'm in service, but because so many of my friends are, are mm -hmm. um, asking themselves that question. Mm -hmm. um, there is no answer. Um, there is only your own evaluation of what's right for you. Um, I think there are many, many jobs in government right now, as I said, where um, you're probably not going to get asked to do anything terrible. Mm -hmm. um, it's very important that you stay because these, um, these functions are critical. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in, in that case, uh, you know, I would certainly encourage you to stay if you don't feel compromised in any way. Um, if you feel like you're, you know, uh, potentially going to be asked to do something against your values and against your better judgment, um, then you have a number of options, and all of those have consequences that are just going to be really specific and really personal. Well, maybe entities like you will hire them and they split from government. Oh, yes, we will. Principles. This, this raises the question of sort of rates of change, because you, you made the point about Moore's Law. And by the way, the same thing is happening in biotechnology. The biotech mm -hmm. is much moving much faster than regulation or governance can keep up. So uh, Jackie asks, or actually quotes, Kate Gosselin said that all digital laws should sunset every five years. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Next day, decade, four years. In it. <laughs> I mean, it was, part of it is depends on what you mean. You know, what what kind? Well, of the laws, kind of yeah. laws you were referring to here that that uh, got encrusted in the nineties. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know didn't know about websites and things like that. Didn't know about iteration, basically. Uh, those, it sounds like you would like to have changed their fund just start over. Yeah, I think part of the issue is that most of the laws don't have anything to do with technology, but govern technology. Ah. Uh, the Privacy Act of 1972, right. um, it governs how we uh, think about uh, data privacy on the internet in, in government, but um, it didn't anticipate the internet. <laughs> so it's open, <laughs> wildly open to interpretation and also not one of the ones I talked about in the talk, but, an, but another example of something that needs to be updated for the modern era. Um, several people, Raul D. Uh, asks, are there other countries that have done this better, that have you know, got the apps and the tech and so on that's really up to speed and a shining example we could all admire and, and implement? That is such a great question. Um, and a couple of years ago, I would have answered it very um, uh, very clearly that uh, the UK has done a fantastic job of this. Really? Um, but it changed. So they also had a change of leadership. <gasps> and the government digital service there that did such a fantastic job of, of, of you know of, of creating better technology for um, um, for Britain um, has, has has changed a lot since. Who uh, changed it and why? Well, uh, I'll give you a little bit of the history. So um, uh, they had, believe it or not, a massive IT uh, government IT failure in their health service. Right. I don't know why this is sort of the thing. 
some you know multi multi billion dollar IT project that went bad, and uh, they had a bunch of um, uh, politicians get together around the idea that they've got to be able to do di you know digital better in the UK, and um, they ended up hiring this guy named Mike Bracken, who was formerly the head of digital for the Guardian. So again, from the consumer realm, mm. um, Mike is amazing, and he went and recruited basically all the top talent from London to come work in government. Hmm. And they had a good long run there, um, not just of creating great digital services, but of sort of, of um, leading the way. Uh, they published an amazing set of design principles that we have essentially adopted here. Um, principles like what? Well, uh, is a great question. So uh, they had these 10 principles, and the first one is, and you see it in my talks, those are like half of what I say is me repeating Mike Bracken. Um, their first one was meet user needs. And then it had a little asterisk next to it. And at the bottom of the page, it said user needs, not government needs. And as an example of how things have changed since the leadership has changed and Mike had to leave, is they've deleted that little asterisk on their page. Um, but anyway, they, they did an amazing amount of fantastic work. Um, when I was asked to come to DC to be part of the um, Office of Science and Technology Policy and work on this stuff, um, what they'd asked me to do was to help with the program that put fellows in different agencies. And I said, what we really need to do is copy what the folks in the UK are doing, wow. which isn't about innovation on the edges. It's about a central place of competence where we can really do it right the first time. And so mm -hmm. everything that we did at USDS is modeled after mm -hmm. the GDS. Uh, but um, yes, when they got new leadership, um, that it was an opportunity for the folks who didn't like the change, who um, preferred to have what, uh, you know, Mike, Mike used to have a big slide up that it said, no more big IT. Well, big IT didn't like that. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's still there, but it doesn't have the same power that it used to. How about the digital service you built? How's that doing? That is doing quite well. Okay, is it essentially got bipartisan support and all that good stuff? It has um, very good bipartisan support. Um, mm -hmm. It turns out that um, when you do digital this way in government, you get um, better outcomes and it's cheaper. And mm -hmm. so uh, you might be progressive and care about better outcomes. We're you know, helping to get more people on food stamps or health benefits, or you might care about the fact that it's cheaper. Either way, it kind of sells itself. Um, right. And yeah, it's, it's getting enormous amount of support and seems to be um, very clearly going to survive the transition. Well, that's fantastic. So that's a shining example. You, yeah. So with that shining example in UK's at least partial shining example, are other entities watching all this and doing their own versions? Is this a, yeah. a viral thing out there? Yeah, um, so you've got uh, digital services now in um, Australia, Argentina. I think there's something, something somewhere in Canada. Um, they're starting one now apparently in Germany. But more importantly, they're happening at the local level. We have Ashley Myers in the audience right now who is um, uh, responsible in large part for creating the San Francisco digital service, right. which is another place that you could go work. <laughs> I'm sorry, she and many others, I'm sure, but I think she did it. So. <laughs> <laughs>
So uh, Will Martin asks, uh, tell us a little bit about Code for America, how is it funded, how do you measure success, what's the sort of story so far, mm -hmm. and uh, what's the hoped for future of both Code for America and this whole framing that you're bringing? Um, sure. So, so Code for America started out as a service year program. Um, so we would put fellows in cities for a year and they would do projects along the lines of some of the ones I showed. And the idea really was to sort of show what was possible with technology in the current era. And we created many, many, many great projects. Um, over time, um, what we decided to do was to take some of those projects that worked in one jurisdiction and um, those that had potential to impact more than just one city uh, needed our help to do that. So the way we think about it now is our mission is still the same. So we believe that government can work for the people, by the people in the 21st century, um, but we want to really show that um, at scale, visibly, at national visible scale, um, by really working with the government services that help those who need the help most. So mm -hmm. we now only work on services for people who you know, need food assistance or other kind of health, um, who need, uh, need to not get caught in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. um, or need access to job training. Uh, so we're, for instance, um, now taking the food stamps application that came out of work that we did in 2013 with the city and county of San Francisco. Um, instead of letting it go at the end of the year and just saying, great, that was a fun project, we kept iterating on it and iterating on it. Actually, several products that we mm -hmm. developed for people on food stamps um, or needing to get on food stamps. And now a couple years later, um, uh, let's see, we have it running, I think, in nine California counties. We actually signed our contract, I think, today to take it to all California counties, and we want to take it to the rest of the country, but we want to do it uh, uh, not just in food stamps. So if you need food stamps, you might also need other services. Mm -hmm. um, in Salt Lake County this year, we worked with the probation department there to use text messaging to keep people compliant with the terms of their probation. Mm. So uh, texting, you tell you today's your day to go get a drug test, um, remember to show up for court, you've got paperwork, you've got to check mm -hmm. in with your, whatever yeah. it is, all by text. So what we think is that um, if I'm texting with you to keep you compliant with the terms of probation, why can't I also text you and say, may we apply for food benefits on your behalf? Mm -hmm. And then you don't ever have to fill out that form. We'll fill it out for you um, and submit your application. We can follow up with you by text message if there are other questions. Um, we want to really radically simplify how people um, experience government services mm -hmm. uh, that's much less about filling out forms and much more about getting the help that you need. And are there, yeah. Thank you. Tech is, keeps moving along. And are there sort of new capabilities with the tech, I don't know, from machine learning to uh, amazing mobile apps that you see as uh, the kind of thing that should not come to government last, but maybe come to government kind of early on? And is that part of what Code for America is doing, is helping these various agencies and so on not only keep current with what finally got cool a couple of years ago, but what is in the process of becoming cool and usable and important? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the honest answer is no. Like, we're pretty happy with government adopting you know, the best practices of six years ago. <laughs> like, that's fine. Right, right. I mean, I, I think there are places in government where you kind of do need the latest shiny thing. Um, mm -hmm. 
but those are often in areas that we, you know that are more like military applications. Mm -hmm. This is sort of not our thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a saying amongst government people. It's like we get um, uh, we're going to get yesterday's technology tomorrow, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that government needs to have um, the latest technology. I think yeah, government okay. needs to have basic stuff that works, and that I think works. it just needs it's practices. Uh, that, yeah, simple's fine with me, personally. How about the whole apparatus <clears throat> around voting? Is that something that you think needs work and that you guys might be interested in? Um, I definitely think it needs work. I think a lot of smart people are working on it. Um, hmm. We um, are not intending to take that on anytime soon. A, because I think so many great smart people are doing it. Hmm. Uh, be the social safety net's like a pretty big thing to deal with, and we've got we've got our work cut out for us there. Um, and then see, you know, we originally came to the notion that we didn't want to work on stuff like that because we wanted to make a point that government is more than politics and more than voting, um, mm -hmm. and that if we started doing voting stuff, everyone would just sort of put us in that bucket of, yeah, of that true. kind of engagement. I think citizen engagement is a lot more than voting, and I think when people go to apply for food stamps or get stuck in the criminal justice system. That is a form of engagement, and it's not a good one. Yeah. And, and uh, we want to work on that. So you've had a number of software engineers sort of come through your process, software and design and various people. And they've had this direct experience of government, and then they go back to the private sector, I mm -hmm. guess. Uh, what's happened to them in that experience? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I, I should start by saying that um, uh, we now um, hire about, uh, let's think this year, we've got nine amazing fellows working with us. Mm -hmm. So people come in for a year and then, and then, um, and then leave. Most of our hires now are um, people that, that are they're not time-limited fellows. They're just mm -hmm. full-time um, employees, long-term employees, because we're actually operating these services. We need people to, to stay um, longer. But... I will, I, I'm definitely incredibly proud of the effect that has um, occurred from having all these amazing people come in, do this year of service, be exposed to things that they wouldn't have been exposed to. And I, by that I mean not just how government works, mm. um, but uh, how people who experience government services uh, do that. So we've got um, two folks in the audience right now who spent the last year with the Seattle Police Department. Uh, and um, you know, I enjoy it when I get to go. It's just, it's, when else would you get to do that and go on ride-alongs with the police and see what happens to mentally ill people when they are constantly hitting mm. the uh, criminal justice system, the health system? Um, they they get a chance to really see some of the big problems in our country up very, very, very close. And for example, what happened to, to those two is that they started a company to continue doing their work. Mm -hmm. I think they're the eighth company to spin out of Code for America. So that's where some of our alumni are, is actually running companies that do this. Hmm. A bunch of the other alumni are working in government now and you know, um, uh, spreading the practices. And then you know, others have gone on, a big chunk of our alumni go on to 18F or USDS. Um, USDS is the, uh, the unit that I talked about that works in the White House. There's a sister group called 18F that also does federal government technology. Um, but even if they go back to uh, their job, like Marcin, who went back to 
to medium, um, mm -hmm. you know, they, they kind of tell us that they're forever changed by the experience. Well, it, it sounds sort of like people who've gone and done jury duty and suddenly, you know, having gone through that process, have a different feeling about the law and so More on. More interesting than jury duty, I hope. Well, yeah, it depends on the, <laughs> depends on the case, obviously. Um, but it is a, a softening of this barrier between, I think, the public and the government that mm -hmm. yeah. is part of what you're enhancing here, which is probably a good thing. I think so. Is that so. your perception? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, here's a question. Mary says, I am a software uh, engineer with agile experience. What is an efficient way to get plucked in fixing government? Plucked? I don't know, hired? Uh, <laughs> You're a software engineer interested in helping fix government? Where are you? <laughs> Show up. Right. Uh, so um, uh, one place to go is um, uh, we have two job boards on our site. One is for people that we want to hire. And I think that's codeformerica.org slash jobs. But there's also jobs.codeformerica.org, which is jobs in local federal, state, and local government that we think would be amazing jobs. Um, so you can go help uh, Peter Kelly fix the child welfare system at the state. Those wow. jobs are on our site. Um, you can go um, uh, work in the criminal justice system in New York City. You can, I mean, it's a technology job. Um, there's a, a whole a wide range of things that you can do that we consider like super high impact, really interesting jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, you can find them on our site. Um, there are 18F and USDS jobs up there too, though I think 18F is on a hiring freeze. USDS, I believe, is not. Um, but, uh, um, you know, talk to us because we'd love to help you start your career in public service technology. I assume going to your website, there's an avenue in for people right there, or do they have to come up here and give you their card? Uh, I'm just going to get the URL wrong. It's jobs.codeformerica.org. <laughs> yeah. So you've worked... And you have people working at various levels of government, from city to county to mm -hmm. state to federal now. Say how those are different in terms of the kinds of uh, problems and solutions that you've been dealing with. Well, um, you know, I think it's been interesting because if you think about what the federal government does, most of it does not touch citizens directly. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at USDS and 18F, um, they have they have taken on the parts of government that do touch mm -hmm. uh, uh, bio taxes, get health care, uh, veterans benefits. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, a big one has been student loans um, and uh, uh, college scorecards, a, a great project that they did. Um, but a lot of technology in federal government is sort of behind the scenes stuff that doesn't mm -hmm. have a citizen interface to it. Um, because most of your interaction with government as an individual will happen in, at the local level, um, I, I find people who work in local government just are just closer to people. They actually under, mm -hmm. they understand people's problems in a way that uh, that federal government employees tend to have their heads more in policy mm -hmm. um, than in sort of oh you know we've got to pick up the trash we've got to do all these things for people. Um, but actually, you know, it's not just that we sort of, you know, need to see this um, uh, greater fluency between the public mm -hmm. sector and the private sector and the social sector. Um, we also do see a fair amount of fluency between the levels of government, and I think that's super healthy as well. Because you, if we have found in our work 
that, you know, for the first couple of years, we didn't deal with the federal government at all. I ended mm. up making a bunch of connections in my work in D.C. in 2013, 2014, and now we are much more connected to the programs that, um, that, are, that are, you know, federally funded, like SNAP, but administered mm. locally. And mm. the coordination between the federal government uh, and the states and then the counties and then sometimes the whole community-based organization ecosystem mm. that helps administer them all that kind of matters, and all those people understanding each part of that um, uh, of that sort of you know chain of money and chain of policy is so important. What do you think is the how's how is this likely to play out? Give it ten years or ten thousand years, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not that comes long. handier. Um, because you've now got what nine years experience doing this, six years, but six. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> you know, get to add on to it. It's go, a long now. Go two point and and and. Um, so figure a decade of experience so far. Look out a decade based on what you've seen. How how is it likely to play out? Is is, is the the tide shifting in some sense of this kind of so intelligent software design approach replacing the old uh, over-specification, vast, slow, no iteration approach that used to be there. Is, is this now mm -hmm. the future? I think it depends. Um, hmm. I would like to say yes. Um, I certainly see evidence that it's going that direction. Um, I think it kind of matters whether people take it seriously and continue to feed the talent pipeline um, and whether people um, get involved, like mm -hmm. uh, the story I told of uh, Code for Tulsa. Mm -hmm. um, we're never going to be big enough to do mm -hmm. all the work that needs to be done, so we have to rely on people taking this seriously as a way of changing our country and, and sort of picking it up. Um, yeah, I think it kind of depends on, on, on whether more people get on board. I also think that we haven't seen very much pushback from the people who have a lot at stake yet. Um, I, I will tell you a story about the government contracting ecosystem, which is very positive, um, and I will take the names out of it. But, and when we did this uh, procurement advocacy with the state of California, um, that's a $600 million RFP that never went out. There were a number of companies that were expecting that yeah. to go out. Um, instead, the state did something that they borrowed from our friends in federal government at 18F called, um, and I, we're not finished with acronyms yet, an Agile BPA, a blanket purchase agreement, where they qualify a certain, um, they have a, a whole set of vendors come and get qualified as agile developers. And the way that um, brilliantly some folks at 18F decided that they would do this is that you can't qualify by filling out forms. You send a team and they have to do a sprint with you. Sometimes it's like a 24-hour thing where they'll say, here's some data, write an API. And we've had some of the most biggest names in technology and government technology fail these sprints completely. Like they could not write a basic API on a set of data in 24 hours. This is um, unfortunately true. So um, sorry if I'm getting too technical, but um, so 
um, a friend of mine at the state told me a story about a company that did not qualify through the Agile BPA that the state did. And so um, this um, public servant got a request for a meeting from this company and he said, oh God, I'm gonna get, you know, they do that, but like they'll sort of, you know, this is terrible, why have you done this? We've been working with the state for, you know, for 100 years and you, you can't do this. And instead, the meeting was this guy saying, um, we failed that test and I wanted you to know that we are retraining all our developers in Agile Mm. and um, we're going to come back next year and we're going to qualify. And I love that you did this because this is going to make it better for us, it's going to make it better for the state, and it's going to make it better for the people we serve. And I just want you to know that I love this. Ooh. Well, maybe that's a glimpse of the right future, but what I'm getting from your answer is it's not a given. It's not a given. And you know, for an agile government to emerge, you and everybody else has to keep bearing down. There, there are other government contractors who have not been so kind to the agenda. And I won't say more. The debate goes on. The debate thank goes on. Thank you for on. doing your part in it. Thank you thank so you much. Tonight. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org.